Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this glorious Shabbat day that you've given us today. For the opportunity to be here in your house, thank you for allowing us to get here safely today. Um, protect us this morning, Lord, as we go through our um, teaching and our service and our whole day here that we are so blessed to be able to enjoy each and every week. Be with us in all that we do, Father. Touch us with your word. Put your word in our hearts that we may live your word in our daily lives. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right. So um, what I've chosen to do today is uh, to teach on the Torah portion. Mishpatim is our Torah portion of today, which um, means judgments. It's, um, it's a Torah portion that is filled with commandments. And in keeping with uh, James' proclamation in Acts that the Torah shall be um, taught each Shabbat in the synagogues, um, that's why I picked the Torah portions to, um, to, to teach on. Um, in our class that I, we have in the afternoons, we call it Yom Torah, Yom Torah now, uh, Day of Torah, our Apostolic Scriptures class. We're studying the book of Acts. And um, one of the, we're probably in about chapter 10 now, or not, we're, we're finishing 9 going into, into chapter 10. And we're getting into the, um, to the conflict that the early believers would have had in, um, in accepting the Gentiles into the Messianic sect known as the Way. They called it the Way. Um, in Judaism, there are three classifications of what you would call believers in God, the believer in the God of Israel. One of them would be Jewish. And Jewish means that you are actually of the bloodline. You are born into the family. You're a direct descendant of one of the 12 tribes. Another way to be a part of Judaism is to be a proselyte. A proselyte would be someone that would be um, um, not born of the bloodline, but that would go through um, a lot of Torah study, a lot of learning the, um, the Jewish culture, and actually go through a formal conversion process where they would go through um, circumcision and uh, um, they actively would keep the Torah's commandments and, and become a, a member of the family, a member of the society. Another way is, is, um, is called a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer would not be born a Jew, typically, nor would they be a proselyte and go through formal conversion. The term God-fearer described non-Jews who, for some reason or another, felt attracted to Jewish monotheism and attached himself or herself to Judaism. Monotheism and Torah-observant Judaism attracted many non-Jews throughout the Roman world. Many of the Jews drawn to the God of Israel elected to undertake legal conversion, which is including circumcision, and become Jewish, whereas others did not. They would worship at the synagogue with Jews and proselytes, but chose not to undergo the formal ritual conversion. They were not exactly idolatrous heathens anymore, but certainly they were not Jews. The Jewish communities generally tolerated their presence in the synagogue 
and appreciated their financial contributions. Well, of course, right? Uh, this gentleman named F.F. F. Bruce provides a summary of, of a first century God-fearer and their phenomenon. Many Gentiles of those days, while not prepared to become fully, full converts to Judaism, were attracted to simple monotheism of the Jewish synagogue, worship, and by ethical standards of the Jewish way of life. Some of them attended synagogue and became tolerable conversant with prayers and scriptural lessons. They became familiar with it, which they heard and read in the Greek version some observed more or less scrupulously such distinct Jewish practices as Sabbath, observance, and abstention from certain types of foods. They would be kosher, mostly pork. Cornelius' attachment to the Jewish religion, if you remember Cornelius in Acts, appeared particularly in his regular prayer to the God of Israel and acts of charity to the people of Israel. One may say indeed, that he had every qualification sort of circumcision which would satisfy being ethnically Jewish or a proselyte. The first century God-fearer can be compared to Ben Noach, which is son of Noah in Judaism today. God-fearers renounced idolatry and polytheism and attached themselves to the God of Israel and the Jewish community. For whatever reason, however, they did not make a formal conversion to Judaism. They remained content to keep the laws of the Jewish community determined as incumbent upon the Gentiles, and they voluntarily took on additional aspects of the Torah observance to a varying degree. The monotheism of the Jews and their separatist society intrigued outsiders. The Jewish people would actually um, separate themselves within communities. They would keep Torah, they would live their, their, um, their Torah-observant life within, within a community, and so they would be separating themselves within a community. During the Roman era, women especially were drawn to engage in Judaism. The religion of the Jews offered women more dignity than the hypersexualized and chauvinistic pagan culture of the Roman world. For all that, However, neither Rome nor the Jewish community accorded God-fearing Gentiles the status of a Jew or as being part of Israel. In this context, a God-fearer is a classification of people related to Judaism. It is not to be understood, misunderstood with one who fears God. A person who fears God is a person who is a strong believer in God and who follows God's commandments because he or she believes unquestionably that God punishes sin and rewards righteousness. A person who fears God is diligent in his or her pursuit of learning and obeying God's commandments. A person who fears God can only be considered a, a member of God's eternal family. A person who fears God recognizes that, we, that, that when they have sinned, and earnestly seeks true repentance and return to their righteous ways. A person who fears God knows that God is always watching our every move. Our Torah portion today, as I said, is, is Mishpatim, which is translated as rulings or judgments. And these are the judgments which you will place before them, it is stated in Exodus 21. 
The first three chapters of this Torah portion deliver a legal code of laws and commandments that form a nucleus for the Torah's laws. The last chapter tells the story of how the people of Israel consented to keep those laws and entered into a covenant relationship with God through a series of rituals conducted by Moses. They accepted God as their God. They accepted his, his Torah and entered into covenant willingly with God at the end of this Torah portion today. This portion is one of the most mitzvah-filled Torah portions. It contains 23 positive and 30 negative commandments, 53 some odd commandments. Within those commandments are included the laws regarding the Hebrew manservant and maidservant, manslaughter, murder, injuring a parent, kidnapping, cursing a parent, personal injury, penalty for killing a slave, personal damages, injuries to slaves, categories of damage, compensatory restitu restitution, culpability for personal property damage. They actually address in detail what, ha what you should do if you damage someone else's property. Seduction, occult practices, idolatry, oppression of widows, children, and orphans. This portion contains laws about lending money, not cursing judges or leaders, ties, firstborn sons, justice, returning strayed animals, assisting unloading a fallen animal under its load. And then it goes on to cover the sabbatical year, the Shabbat, or the Sabbath, and the three pilgrimage festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Mishpatim concludes with the promise from Adonai to lead us into the land of Israel, safeguard our journey, ensure the demise of our enemies, and guarantee our safety in the land if we uphold the Torah and do the mitzvah. Moses makes preparations for himself and for the people, and then he ascends Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. This Torah portion comes after last week's Torah portion where God actually gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. Note that this is the Parsha of Shavuot. Shavuot was celebrated for thousands of years before the disciples or the apostles gathered in, in the temple after Yeshua ascended. And they were celebrating, among other things, the giving of the Torah and the Book of the Covenant. This Parsha, dealing primarily with civil and tort law, with the Ten Commandments that were just given last week, and the laws of the altar provide a startling insight into Judaism. To God, there is no realm of religion. Most people think of religion as a matter of ritual and spirituality. Western man differentiates between church and state. The Torah knows no such distinction. To the contrary, all areas of life are intertwined and holiness derives from holocaustically correct business dealings no less than from piety in matters of ritual. The sages teach that one who wishes to be chesed, chesed 
or a devoutly pious person should be scrupulous in matters of civil and tort law, for in Judaism the concept of temple is in the courtroom as well as in the synagogue. There is no separation. The Talmud teaches that one who wishes to become religiously devout should be careful regarding the laws of damages. This forcefully refutes the common misconception that religion is confined to ritual and temple. One who is negligent with someone else's property is as irreligious as someone who is negligent in the Shabbat or kosher observance. The above dictum of the sages shows that the Torah embraces all areas of life and that holiness is indivisible. Several of the laws speak of bringing the case before Ha-Elohim, i.e. before God. This seems to imply that the supreme judge would settle legal matters, but the context in indicates that the Torah envisioned a human court of judges. Numerous commandments regarding dispensing justice fairly and testifying honestly make it clear that human courts are in view. Some English translators choose to translate Elohim, Ha Elohim as God, while others choose to translate it as judges. Perhaps both are correct. Jewish thought does not sharply distinguish between the domains of civil, moral, and ceremonial law. They are all God's Torah. An ancient Israelite judge judicial court was also a religious court. The legal issues they debated and decided pertain to interpretation of the Torah. God was at the center of the Torah's legal system. To appear before a Torah court of law is to appear before God, for the Torah dispenses God's law. Modern Western readers find many of the laws in this Torah portion harsh, primitive, and otherwise distasteful. The laws reflect a different world from our own. When the Torah begins to speak in matter-of-fact manner about the institution of slavery, about the selling of one's daughter, about repaying measure for measure, it disconcerts the modern reader. He or she is tempted to comfort himself with the notion that the unpleasant laws have been done away with by the New Testament and replaced by kinder, gentler, and nobler virtues. On the contrary, the mouth of God spoke every commandment of the Torah. Human society may change, but God does not change. Each mitzvah is holy and eternal. Every commandment distills his essence and communicates a pure revelation of his person. The study of the commandments is the study of God. Obeying the commandments is true worship of God. As soon as we began to discard the commandments, we have begun editing and reshaping the Almighty into an image that we deem more appropriate. If a person realizes that Torah is God's own self-disclosure to the world, he will appreciate the enormous gravity and declaring that the same Torah is null and void. The Talmud reminds us 
that the Torah was not given to angels. Instead, God gave the Torah to a flawed and sinful human beings. The Torah speaks directly into human society with all its wrinkles, and it speaks in a language of the flawed and imperfect in order to infuse godliness into the world. It had descended from a very high place, from God, to a very low place, man. Yet it has still remained its godly essence. Um, there's a um, work that um, it's called the Book of Mitzvot. And this particular one is put together by uh, Art Scroll is, is uh, put, put out by Art Scroll. There's um, this term called kunuk, which is, uh, uh, I think it's like a 13th century expansion on Mamamides or Rambam's um, detail of the 613 commandments. And in this book is um, all, well, it's, a, it's basically a series of 10 books. All 613 commandments are given in detail. Um, and I'm going to go through a few of them in a, in a moment, but I wanted to give you a little introduction to this book of mitzvahs. And this is, this is, all, this is Jewish, definitely Jewish. It's not messianic. Um, so it's, it's, it's spoken from a Jewish perspective. Um, but that's okay. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's the family that we're, we've attached ourselves to. And this is, this, is from, this is from the introduction to the Book of Mitzvot. The Torah states that Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. The task of working and guarding the Garden of Eden was not something that could be taught in schools of agriculture. Rather, we must understand that although the Garden of Eden had an outer form of soil and trees, its essence was spiritual indeed. Spirituality is the underlying essence of all human and material existence. That is how we must understand the Torah's description of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot as being spiritual holidays. They are all sort of centered around agriculture in our earthly sense, but there's spiritual, spirituality in, the, in those um, appointed times of God. Spring is a time when the earth rejuvenates itself after the death of vegetation in the cold winter. Springtime therefore serves as a metaphor for people's ability to change themselves after a moral or other downfall. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, um, to renew yourself. And God's world works that way. God's world is constantly renewing itself. We have new days every day, and spring is, is, is a time of renewal. That's also what happened during the month of Nisan in Egypt, when our ancestors emerged from slavery of body and spirit to begin the advance to Sinai to receive the Torah and become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This potential to turn away from sin and ascend to greatness always exists and particularly every year with the arrival of Pesach. Nisan and Pesach represent spiritual rejuvenation. 
The same is true of Shavuot and Sukkot. Both spiritual and material existence require active work and protection in order to thrive. The sages derive from scripture that rain is the spiritual sense, in a spiritual sense, is Torah study, and seeds are the performance of the Torah's commandments. Those are means through which the spiritual earth can produce life-giving crops. As the prophet Hosea says, sow righteousness for yourselves and you will reap according to your kindness. When one righteously and kindly uses his resources to help others, he will reap the benefits not only in the gratitude that the other person expresses toward him, but in his own growth as a better person. A person's body is not the person. The person is the inner substance beneath the flesh, limbs, and organs. When Job complained to God about his misfortune, he agonized. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You covered me with bones and sinews. Job was emphatically, said emphatically that skin, flesh, bones, and sinews are his covering. Well, if so, who is he? Or what is he? Job, like every human being, is the inner self, the spiritual self, the soul. God created the body as a garment for the soul to correspond to the spiritual contours of the soul. The body has 248 parts, and there are 365 sinews to connect the body parts and enable them to function and to receive nourishment through the circulatory system. 248 and 365 is 613. Then he breathed the soul into the body so that its 248 and 365 spiritual parts and sinews could bring the body to life and activate it to perform the commandments. That the body is no more than a garment is clear since there is no more, no more life in the body when the soul leaves it. God created good and evil in the world so man would be able to overcome temptation and thereby we be worthy of reconciliation with him. Just as a pure soul inhabits the body, so does an impure spiritual source, the evil inclination. And there is an internal conquest between the two. Each needs spiritual nourishment in order to exist. The nourishment of the holy soul is observance of the commandments and the nourishment of the evil inclination is just the opposite. Rambam in his work Mishnah Torah identifies 613 commandments in the Torah, 365 negative commandments and 248 positive commandments. Negative commandments being commandments that tell you to not to do something and positive commandments are commandments that tell you to do something. He believes that negative commandments are meant to prevent the Jew from harming or even losing his predestined share in the world to come. And he believes that the positive commandments give the Jew the opportunity to elevate himself and thereby increase his share in the world to come. The Torah's commandments relate to all areas in one's life. So let's look at a couple of these commandments. Um, 
I didn't mark many of them. I, there was, there's 53 of them. Y'all would really get bored if I tried to go through too many of these. But it's interesting how they lay these things out. And um, this particular book covers 65 commandments. So there's 10 different books that cover the 613 commandments. Um, and I'm going to cover this one here that is listed in Exodus 21.2. And it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall work for six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free for no charge. Now, this is the first commandment that's given this week in Mishpatim after the Ten Commandments were given last week. So there must be some importance to this being the very first commandment given. In early times, it was possible under certain circumstances for one Jew to purchase the rights to have another Jew serve him as a Hebrew servant who must perform work for the term of his service without further compensation. A Jewish man could become a Hebrew servant in one of two situations. One, if he stole and did not, did not have enough money to pay back what he stole. Or two, if one's financial situation was so desperate that he did not have enough money to buy food and clothing. He was just basically destitute and needing help. Only an adult man could be sold as a Hebrew servant. A woman is not sold for her theft, nor could she sell herself as a maidservant. In certain situations, a minor girl could be sold as a maidservant. But the laws governing her service and termination of her service are not the same as those that apply to a male servant. For the particulars of these laws, you can see Mitzvahs 43 through 44. A male minor could not sell himself, nor could he be sold as a Hebrew save by anyone else. So this is kind of giving you some um, um, definition of, of the commandment. They give us this underlying purpose of the mitzvah. Among the underlying purposes of this mitzvah is that God desired his nation Israel, whom he chose from among the other peoples of the world, should be a holy nation, replete and crowned with all good and exalted qualities, as the heavenly blessing will thus rest upon them. Kindness and mercy among the finest qualities that a person, or are among the finest qualities that a person can attain in the world. Therefore, therefore he, enjoined him, he enjoined us through this mitzvah to have mercy upon one who is under our authority, such as the Hebrew servant, and to bestow upon him kindness in accordance with the laws written in this Torah passage regarding the servant, as well as in accordance with the oral law that we know through tradition. This mitzvah applies to, this is the applicability of the mitzvah. I can always talk. This mitzvah applies to both men and women, for a woman may not purchase a servant. This, this mitzvah applies to men, but not to women, because a woman may not purchase a servant. All right, the significance of this mitzvah. Acting compassionately serves to develop the character traits of kindness and mercy. It was teaching you to act compassionately, is what that mitzvah was teaching you to do. So let's take, one, take another one here. This one is the... Um, Obligation to administer the laws of penalty and payments for one who injures his fellow. This was in Exodus 21, 18 through 19. If men quarreled and one strikes his fellow with a stone or fist, and he does not die but falls into a bed, if he gets up and goes about outside under his own power, the one who struck is absolved. Only for, this, for his lost time shall he pay, and he shall provide for healing. This mitzvah focuses 
on the five payments that an assailant is obligated to make to his victim, namely compensation for one damages, two pain, three healing, which is uh, like medical expenses, four the loss of income while recuperating, and five humiliation. These payments are known collectively as the five things. While only two of these payments, compensation for the loss of income and healing, are mentioned in the above verses, these verses serve as the source of the general obligation to judge an assaulter in accordance with all the appropriate Torah laws. We are commanded regarding the law of one who wounds his fellow that we are to punish him, punish him by requiring him to pay his victim. This is the underlying purpose. With respect to the underlying purpose of this mitzvah, as well as all the mitzvahs included in the Torah that are related to the topic of justice, I have no need to toil to find underlying reasoning for the matter because it is sensible and easily understood. If there is no justice, people will not be able to form a civilized society, and we will never be able to remain together as a community. It is therefore impossible for the world to survive without the establishment of laws that provide for justice. So I picked those, those two, I got two more that are short. Um, the first one is the obligation to celebrate the pilgrimage festivals. This is in Exodus 23, 14. Three pilgrimage festivals shall you celebrate for me in the year. In, this, in, this, in subsequent verses on this passage of the Torah, it is identified the three occasions that are to be celebrated annually as national pilgrimage in, to the temple in Jerusalem. The festival of Masa, the festival of Shavuot, and the festival of Sukkot. The passage further specifies that on these occasions, all Jewish men must appear before the Lord if, at the temple, and it cautions us not to appear, appear before him empty-handed. Elsewhere, in Deuteronomy 16, the Torah mentions an additional requirement to rejoice on these festivals together with our families and with the needy. And one more, which is the prohibition to cook meat with milk. Now, this is something that uh, we struggle with tremendously, okay? This is in Exodus 23:19. You shall not cook a kid in the milk of its mother. So they go into a lot of different things about this, and there's actually um, a lot of rabbinic things about not eating hamburgers, cheeseburgers, right? Not eating, eating uh, meat with cheese. And we question this, you know. It is apparent from this that the prohibition to cook meat and milk together is not due at all to the harm one would suffer from eating such a mixture. Rather, the intent is simply that we should not perform the action of this mixing itself due to the necessity of distancing, distancing that matter which we have described, i.e., the blending of elements that must remain separate in accordance with the order that the Creator prescribed for His world. Some commandments we don't understand. Some commandments we don't have the capacity to understand. But the Lord um, gives them to us for a reason. And it's not our place to understand all of the commandments. 
Um, so Mishpatim, as every Torah portion, is divided into seven sections where the seven readers of the, in the synagogue would have read um, those seven sections on, uh, I'm going to put this up here, on, on a, in a, in a um, uh, teaching, in a, in, a, in a Torah teaching. In a synagogue, the whole Torah would have been read back in the day. You wouldn't have just read a small passage like we do in our Aliyah. And this shows you the, the seven different uh, places, if y'all can read that, the seven different sections. The first one is Exodus 21, 1 through 2, and it describes laws of liberty. The second one is Exodus 21, 20, and it is, describes laws of measure for measure. Exodus 22, 5 describes laws of restitution. Exodus 22, 28 describes authority. 23, 6, impartiality. 23, 20, servanthood. 23, 26, prosperity. And the Mephtir is entering into God's, God's glory, which is them accepting the law. Um, Let's talk a little bit about grace versus law. The Torah contains a lot of laws and commandments. The Torah is much more than just a legal code. The word Torah means instruction. The laws and commandments found in the Torah are God's instruction for how he wants his people to live. The Torah is like a user's manual for life. Of the 613 commandments that the sages traditionally derive from the Torah, more than 50 of them are found in this week's Parsha, as we talked about. What is this concept of grace versus law? What do we mean when we say that we are not under the law? Does that mean that we do not have to keep God's rules? The grace versus law concept is derived from the writings of Paul, Shaul. Was Paul teaching believers that they did not have to keep God's rules? In Paul's day, many of the Jewish believers taught that before Gentiles could be a part of the kingdom of heaven, they needed to become Jewish, i.e. a proselyte, before being saved. This is what um, Paul calls being under the law. As we have seen earlier in our studies, Paul believed the Gentiles became sons of Abraham and part of the people of God through the faith in Messiah. They did not earn that status by becoming legally Jewish. They did not need to first come, become under the law in order to enter the kingdom. The Bible does not actually teach the idea of grace versus law. Grace is God's free gift of salvation for those who believe in his son. Law is his, is his loving instruction for how we, his people, should live. Grace versus law is a false dichotomy. They are not opposite of each other. They are meant to work hand in hand. Things get backward if we start to believe we must keep God's law in order to be saved. Instead, we should keep God's law because we are saved. There are different types of law. There's a mitzvah. A mitzvah is the broadest Hebrew word for a commandment. It comes from the Hebrew word, word, root word, zavah which means to command. It can be used to refer to any mandate that God gives. Its common usage is often referred to as a good deed. 
there's mishpat. The Hebrew word mishpat is not translated by the uh, NASB as an ordinance, but it would be better translated as a judgment. Its root word is shafat, which means to judge. The name of this Torah portion is the plural version of the word mishpat, which is mishpatim. Mishpatim is best understood as a legal code of judgments that might have been issued by a court of law. They may be seen as civil laws and case precedents. There is chuk. The word Hebrew, the Hebrew word chuk, pronounced like hook, chuk, not like the name Chuck. According to the traditional interpretation, it refers to a commandment that has no rational explanation, sort of like the milk law. For example, the commandment not to murder is reasonable and rational. The logic behind the commandment not to wear a garment made of wool and linen is more obscure. A hook does not need to make sense to us. It is simply a mandate from the Almighty. Torah. The word Torah means instruction. It can be translated as law, instruction, or teaching. It may refer to a single law or a certain category of laws or the entire five books of Moses. By whatever name we call them, the commandment of, commandments of God are all his wise and loving instruction for his people. Parsha Mishpatim, judgment, spells out Sefer Habrit, which is the book of the covenant, instructing judges on case law for a society ruled by Torah. Rulings enact legislation, I'm sorry, rulings enact legislation derived from the founding principles. Assert Habriot, which means the ten words. God spoke to all Israel at Sinai. Last week, he spoke those to all Israel. When Moses went up to the mountain to get the tablets, they'd already been spoken. These words had been spoken in last week's Torah portion, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Built upon the exodus from slavery, this society must always remember to protect the liberty of its citizens. Even th the citizens who have hard-heartedly reduced themselves to slavery. Underlying principles such as freedom from oppression and compassion for the poor undergird the foundations of a society in covenant with the Lord. Restitution or economic remedy must accompany apology for all offenses. You just can't apologize. There must be something else. You have to, to make, make good on what you've done. Fair compensation derived from case law is derived from the principle of measure for measure. Where the rights of citizens conflict, the rights of the needy take precedence. Take precedence. However, judges are not to show partiality to protect the poor. Rewards for covenant loyalty include momentous blessing, momentous blessing super loyalty, and super obedience are rewarded by super blessings from God. But for now, these three, three last things, I'm sorry, but for now, three things last. Trust, hope, and love. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Hope, God's vision of the future, guarantees eternity with God. Do you think it is possible to build your life on trust, hope, and love? Or do you live in a real world where one must work for a living by the sweat of one's brow? 
Do you believe that man lives by bread alone? Yeshua quotes the Torah, that one must also live on every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. The children of Israel did not work for a living in the wilderness. Their expenses zeroed out. Clothes did not get holes, shoes did not wear out, and bread came to them straight from heaven. Do you desire such an existence? Yet Israel remained slow to trust and hope that God would in fact provide, even as he was providing. Israel found that the idea of living the life of radical faith was just too scary. An idyllic life of sabbatical years, no work in year seven, and jubilees, all debtors go free in year 50, had never been voluntarily observed. Yet God promises that those who sow idealism based on his word will reap it, not only in the life to come, but in this real world as well. I've been studying in my uh, Yom Torah class the apostolic scriptures. We are currently in the book of Acts. Acts is the book the Christian church uses as their roots in history. It is a clear case of identity theft, but that is, is, a, that is no, not to say the church, which definitely can trace its roots to Acts, has not performed God's plan in the world, but they've definitely taken it as a um, out of context, let's put it that way. You see, without the church, I doubt I'd be standing before you today teaching God's word, because that's where I came from. The book of Acts is the deeds of the sent ones. Yeshua commissioned, trained, and sent the apostles to spread the gospel message of repentance and salvation. Acts 15, as Cheryl Zettler and others have taught in the past at this Bema, is, is a hugely misunderstood chapter of scripture by both the Christian and the Messianic world. Acts 15 has spiritual application as to how we as Messianic believers should handle the Torah and in particular, the commandments of the Torah. J.K. McKee, in his works, I've got that right here, let me pull this up. Right J.K. McKee, in his works on Acts 15, Acts for the Practical Messianic, does a great job of explaining the tremendously important chapter of Acts 15 in the Apostolic Scriptures. This is a section that he has in his introduction called, How Does Acts 15 Relate to Messianic Believers Today? This is from his work. It is certainly important for us to recognize where Christian interpreters often stand with Acts 15 and its relation to the spread of the good news in the first century. However, what is more important for us to consider is how the Jerusalem Council affects the growth and mission of today's Messianic movement. Many of our teachers and leaders place a significant degree of importance on this conference, especially in terms of how much or how little, if any, Torah observance was or is required by non-Jewish believers, both then and now. Evaluating the events of the Apostolic Council is also quite imperative as to whether or not today's Messianic community 
is to only be a group of Jewish believers in Messiah, or is it to become something much larger? Injecting ourselves into the first century synagogue, there was a group of people on the outside corners often known as either God-fearers or God-worshippers, as I described when I began this teaching. This is a group of non-Jewish people who expressed belief in God of Israel, associated with the Jewish synagogue, but they had not become full proselytes to Judaism. Ethnically, they, they still remained Greek or Roman and had not gone through the process of ritual circumcision. Given the fact that many of the new non-religious Jewish believers had already been associated with the Jewish synagogue in some way, would these people have to become ethnic Jews in order to be incorporated into the community of God? This is, after all, the normal progression that one would expect of a first-century God-fearer. Once a non-Jew had started living an ethical and moral life as specified by the Torah, and it also start, started following most of its outward commandments in obedience to God, all that remained was going through this ritual proselyte circumcision to be, reckon, to be reckoned as an ethnic Jew. Many of the Jewish believers in the first century who recognized Yeshua as the Messiah expected the non-Jewish believers to go through this ritual process of circumcision, becoming ethnic Jews. They probably thought this was necessary in order for the ecclesia slash congregation to make up for the considerable numbers of Jews who had rejected the Messiah claims of Yeshua. Can you kind of see what's going on here? Acts 15 is a um, description of this, this problem they had, see? Because what was going on were they had more Gentiles coming than they could proselyte. Proselyte, to become a proselyte, you had to go through this, this process. You had, to, you had to learn Torah. It wasn't just a matter of just uh, saying you wanted to do something. You had to go through a process, and somebody had to lead you through that process. They didn't have the people. They didn't, they didn't have the uh, infrastructure to be able to do that. Since so many Jews had refused to recognize Yeshua as Messiah, it was necessary, they conceded, to admit Gentiles into the Messianic community in order to make up the full complement. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he says. But these Gentiles should be admitted on terms similar to those required of proselytes to Judaism. They must be circumcised and assume the obligation to keep Mosaic law, Moses' law. Circumcision was something so significant to Jewish identity in the first century that within the apostolic scriptures themselves, references that are often viewed as synonymous with being Jewish. We should never think that all Jews in the first century had a rigid view of circumcision. There are stories, Cornelius being one, King Azetes, I believe it is, is another, that, that didn't become proselytes, even though they were very strong believers and, and very strong followers of Torah, because it would put their lives in danger to do so. Keep in mind that there are pharisaical schools. It was more, the more progressive school of Hillel which taught that the rest of the Torah was all commentary on the commandment to love one's neighbor. Just as Yeshua gave us this great, this great commandment, Hillel had done that for the, Jewish, for the Jewish people in the first century. Everything else he said was secondary, and certainly 
Within the Jewish world of the first century, there were people who did not understand how their expectations, how their expectations, expectations to the role of circumcision. circumcision sorry. Unfortunately, many of the first century early Jewish believers did not see this. They were Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The one that wasn't was Paul. Paul was Jewish too, but Paul was, was, was one that had an open mind of welcoming in the Gentiles. He was, he was the apostle that was out introducing Yeshua to the Gentiles. In the first century, there were precedents for accepting non-Jews as associate members of the Jewish community on the basis of being some kind of God-fearers. These people may be accepted because of the following of Moses' Torah as valid instruction, but stopped short of becoming full proselytes to Judaism. A few interpreters think that the Jewish council simply, simply reaffirmed this. Such a view is also something that many of today's Messianic Jews think that non-Jews attracted to Messianic Judaism now in the 21st century can attain. They can practice some features of the Torah, but they would not be able to lead or teach a Messianic Jewish congregation. A debate has emerged with the rise of the broadly independent Messianic movement is whether or not this is a proper evaluation of the Jerusalem Council. We face the same issues today in a lot of ways. Many of us will become messianic and we almost become orthodox. We almost think that, um, that everyone has to follow the commandments as an orthodox Jew would follow the commandments. But that's not us. That's not being messianic. I'm going to sort of end this with this. It is a common argument today in today's Messianic Judaism that since Yeshua was a practicing Jew, that Messianic Judaism should be an institution firmly rooted within the faith tenets of a modern synagogue. To this view's credit, I think we could, would all agree that to ignore and dismiss Jewish theological tradition offhand would be a mistake. We should never forget the roots. We should never forget where we came from. Yet it would be equally a mistake to try to synthesize all forms of apostolic theology with, present, with the present day synagogue. The apostolic scriptures are clear that while the original followers of Yeshua lived as Jews and were Jews, there are various areas where they definitely clashed with the Jewish mainstream, especially as it regarded to the grand inclusion of the nations as equals within God's covenant community. Similarly, for today's messianic movement, to try to conform most, if not all, of our theology with current Orthodox Judaism would have to occur at the expense of the universal ramifications of the gospel for all humanity. We can never throw out the gospel. So, while Judaism's interpretations of scripture can surely be considered in our conversations of theology, what makes us uniquely messianic is that it's Yeshua and the apostles' interpretations of scripture, the Tanakh 
and the accompanying work of the Holy Spirit that stands definitively as authoritative for us. We should never forget the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit that Yeshua, God, will bring his children to his Torah. It is through the Holy Spirit that I stand before you today. The Holy Spirit brought me here. He guided me here. He guided me into Messianic Judaism. He showed me these truths. The Spirit should never be underestimated. The Spirit should never be um, forgotten. The Holy Spirit is the important gift that, that Yeshua gave to his apostles. And when you read the book of Acts and you see the conversion first of the Jews that happened in the synagogue on that Shavuot, then of the Samaritans, which, happened, which was the first that they went to as they were being persecuted in the land, and then to the Gentiles. The common denominator is that the Holy Spirit was involved with all of it. So let's don't ever forget the Spirit. We should never judge others as to how they are following Torah. The Torah will become part of them if they are part of God. So let's end with a prayer. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you so much again for this glorious day, for all these wonderful people that have come before you in your house on your day, Father, to draw nearer to you, for that is what we are here for, for that Sinai experience, to come nearer to you. Father, thank you for the blessings that you've given us this week, for the lessons that you've given us this week. Protect us and guide us and love us as we go through this here today. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.